Keep your Bible with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 1. I'm actually going to read through uh, 13. 1 through 13 is where I'm going to stop. Let's pray one time. Father, thank you for, for the truth of the gospel, Lord, for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, for your goodness toward us in Christ Jesus, Lord. We are uh, we're at your mercy, Lord. We need your help. And so would you help? I pray that your word would go forth in power, Lord, that, that, that you would convict hearts, that you would, would change hearts, Lord, and turn your people back towards you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke, Luke 3. Uh, this, te- this text kind of takes, um, takes place directly after where we were last week in Luke 2, the Christmas narrative there. And so that is very simply why I picked it. So let's, uh, let's read it together. <coughs> Luke 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch, excuse me, Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituri, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism for repentance of uh, uh, for, no a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness: Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. I, um, I love the way that I grew up. I, I don't know about any of y'all, but I actually, I've lived here. You might have heard me say this. I've lived here my entire life. Anybody else lived in this area your whole life, maybe with a short break? Yeah. Yeah, okay, a few of y'all. We, we actually lived in, in Cool for kind of the latter half of my childhood on like five to seven acres. I don't know exactly how much it was. Um, and this was, of course, before anybody else really lived out there. Now, if you drive through certain parts of Cool, there are neighborhoods and, and what have you. So no, no neighborhoods in that area back then. So since I didn't really grow up in a neighborhood, uh, we didn't have what you would call a yard. 
It was just kind of a wild wilderness out there in front of the house. You know what I'm saying? Um, and since I uh, didn't grow up with a yard, I never learned how to do anything to take care of a yard. And, um, and it still shows to, to this day. Nothing about taking care of grass or trees or, or, or plants, uh, none of that kind of stuff. I actually never really lived in town until Cassia and me got married in 2010 when I was 21 and we moved into Mineral Wells into a neighborhood. And ironically, one of the things about our house that we found so appealing when we were first looking to buy was the size of our backyard. For, for a normal standard neighborhood in Mineral Wells, uh, our backyard is ginormous. And uh, so when we moved in, in that gigantic backyard, which we had no idea how to take care of, uh, was a lone pear tree, which, of course, we also had no idea how to take care of. And the first few years that we lived there, uh, this tree bore quite a few pears. Um, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. We were young, and we were just kind of, you know, living. Uh, sometimes it seemed like we only slept there. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just kind of the pace of life at that point. And... Um, so I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it, but, but it was bearing some pears. Sometimes they were rotten. Sometimes they were good. You know, it, was, it just kind of uh, varied. Um, but over time, the yield did decrease uh, steadily from one year to the next. And as it turns out, now I know that tree was on the slow train to Deathsville. At one point, uh, of course, it stopped bearing fruit altogether. And uh, even though it was covered with all the signs of life, right? Lots of green leaves and even new branches shooting up out of it. And thinking back, you know, I realized that, that in those last few years especially, even when it looked like it was making a comeback, the reality was it was all leaves but no fruit. At one point after a, a windy night or, you know, a storm or, or, or what have you, uh, I looked in the backyard and, and to my surprise, the top half of this tree had basically just broken off and was laying over in the yard, maybe five, six feet you know, up the trunk, whatever, probably not exactly half, but you get, you, you get the picture. And um, it, it was strange because it had the appearance of life. Remember, lots of green leaves, lots of new branches, but there was this weakness kind of right in the middle of it that it just could no longer overcome. It couldn't withstand the elements anymore. Most recently, uh, m- maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half, I don't know, I'm probably lying to you. Uh, there were still some signs of life, even though it had broken over and it was basically just kind of like this stump thing. It was, it was you know, still there, um, not good attending to those things. So I, I didn't really uh, deal with it back then, but, but I decided at this point, I'm going to cut back all the dead stuff and I'm going to try to let some new shoots grow out. And, uh, and, and so that's what happened. And they shot, some were shooting up out of the roots, you know, from the ground. They shot up surprisingly high. I mean, 10, 12 feet high. And, and, and so I thought that this thing was making a comeback and I was kind of as excited as you can get about a tree. And so it, it's, it's covered with leaves, again, all the signs of life, again, but of course still no fruit. Now I thought, okay, it's just going to take some time, it'll mature, and, and all that'll work out. But unfortunately, within months, everything was dead. And there was no coming back. And we were actually in the backyard uh, yesterday and uh, after I'd already written this and, and I was kind of struck by it. I looked over there and it's just, everything's brown, everything's dead uh, and it's not making a comeback now. So now it's nothing but a stump and a memory. 
Looking back now, I, I recognize that the first sign, and this might be obvious to a lot of you, the first sign that there was a massive problem was obvious. It had all the signs of life, but not a bit of fruit. And when the fruit started to wane, that should have tipped me off that there was something seriously wrong. And, and, and he, here's what I learned. Bearing no fruit is a sign that death is taking over the system. Bearing no fruit is a sign that death is taking over the system. And unless you're willing at that point to take drastic measures in order to, to reverse that process, to change the trajectory, you might as well take your saw out right then and just finish the job. Because there is no comeback on the horizon. Concerning our text, I want to ask the question this morning. What does Luke 3, the section that we read, what does it tell us about bearing fruit? What does it tell us about bearing fruit? I'm going to offer up four thoughts on John's proclamation. Number one, the occasion. Number two, the cause. And then we're going to slow down a little bit with number three, talk about the content, and finish it up uh, with the outcome and see how that applies to us. All right, let's dig in. The occasion, so the time and place of, of the occurrence of John's preaching here. If you notice, Luke, that's the author, he, he name drops all of these people and places. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Annas, Caiaphas, Roman and Jewish leaders alike. And he also name drops a lot of places, the region of Aturai, Trachonitis, Judea, Galilee, Abilene. Why, why do that? Why name drop all of these people and places? Well, you may or may not know, one reason is that in, in the first, first century AD, uh, and really throughout most of history, there was no one standardized calendar. They didn't say year 30, because they would have been like, what are we counting up from? They hadn't figured that out yet, right? That didn't, that didn't come on until centuries later. And, and so uh, there was, since there was not one universal way of keeping track of what year it was, uh, you had to place events at a particular point in history based on th the most common way to do it was uh, using things like, you know, the rules of leaders that the reader would be reasonably expected to, to know. And remember, verifiable, historic people, places, and things. And so that is part of what Luke is doing there. He names multiple uh, leaders from that area, both Roman and Jewish, in order to, to place this in a very specific window of time. This text also mentions that John was in the wilderness. That phrase is used, in part, to connect this this occurrence, to another large event uh, in history, namely the exodus of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. That makes sense, right? They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, and, and they wandered out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so historically, you know, the Jews would have rehearsed this story over and over and over again. You even see it in the, in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You see them rehearsing the story over and over and over again. It was so important to them so that they could remember the mighty works that the Lord had performed in order to deliver them. And here we see a similar, uh, we, we see a similar correlation between this event with John and the original Exodus. And this is very important because... At this time and in this text, God's people are preparing to experience another exodus. But this time it's going to be deliverance from a slavery of a different sort. 
and to a promised land of a different kind. Okay, the occasion, the cause, the content, the outcome. Let's talk about the cause. What caused this, this episode with John to occur? You see it up on the screen there. In verse two, it says, the word of God came to John. Listen, when, when the word of God is set loose on the scene, that's always the start of something. The word of God came to John. So of course, something starts happening. It'd been a long time since the people had heard the voice of God. And here it comes to John. And so something starts to happen. There, there, there's something else that's going on with the use of that phrase there. I, I think the word of God came to John. If you read your Bible, this phrase probably sounds familiar, especially if, you read, uh, if you've read the Old Testament. That's because this is the way that the Old Testament usually describes, especially introduces the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament prophets. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. That's Isaiah 38. Now the word of the Lord came to me. That's Jeremiah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. That's Ezekiel 1. And so you see, you see the similarity there. And, and now, in particular to this text, we see that in a similar way, the word of God comes to John. That tips us off to the fact that John was, he, he was kind of, an, and you might have heard this before, he was kind of the last to come along in, in the form of the Old Testament style prophet. And that also tells us that what he had to say, listen, was seriously important. And to be highly regarded by those who would hear. And it seems as though the people did esteem him highly. There are crowds coming out to him in the wilderness, right? Just as a prophet would have been esteemed. Even though he is about to call them out in a very serious and direct way. Okay, the occasion, the cause. Let's talk about the content. The content. What was it that John was trying to tell the people? We're going to slow down a little bit here. What was it that John was trying to tell the people? <clears throat> Let's look at verse 3, and then we'll bump down to verse 7. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I got that out in one try this time. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits, <coughs> excuse me, in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is he telling them? What is the content of his message? Very simply, really repent and really get real. Really repent and really get real. He, he's not telling them not to participate in this like religious observance. That's not what he's telling them. He's telling them don't participate mindlessly. Don't do it just to do it without thinking about it. Really repent. Have a change of mind and He's telling them, don't participate heartlessly. Don't do it and then just go about your life like nothing ever happened. Really, get real. A commentator says about John's question in verse 7, who warned you to flee? He said, this is for those who, who think that escape from judgment will come through mere baptism. Just another ritual washing, right? 
Jewish people liked that. They really were into this, this, this constant rich, ritual washing of, of all different sorts. Just another ritual washing, but this one is with a celebrity preacher. He's got a huge following, right? The commentator goes on to say, only true repentance in contrast to the act of baptism alone getting dunked down in the water, only true repentance allows believers to escape from the wrath to come, of course, plus the, the, the grace of God at work in their lives. And so I think, I, I think in particular, John is, is, is calling out to the religious people in the crowd, and, and I'll show you why here in a minute, but, but I think that he cries out like he does to the religious people in the crowd. He, he says, you brood of vipers, because they're operating under a false assumption that all they need to do is just add another religious experience to their resume. Tilt the scales a little further in their favor. Baptized by John in the Jordan. Check. God has to like me now. His first recorded prophet in centuries. There's got to be something special on him that'll rub off on to me. Celebrity is next to godliness after all. He's got such a big following and he's so eclectic. Have you seen the way that he dresses? Have you heard about the stuff that he eats? Man, he's so interesting. But John sees right through it, and he's just simply not having it. And, and these very people who are clamoring to rub elbows with who they thought was the latest religious elite were the very ones who became the targets of his latest rebuke. You brood of vipers, who warned you? And John knows this, so he issues, issues a sober warning. He says, bear fruit or prepare to die. <laughs> Fruitless religious Busyness is not the way to the heart of God. God doesn't care that you're children of Abraham by your bloodline. He does, but not, not in this instance, right? He, that, that doesn't help you in terms of repentance. He doesn't care for that. He, he could raise them up from anywhere. Remember when he created man up out of the dust? He could do that again right now if he wanted to. You're on the verge of being cut down for the sake of your sweeping generational wickedness, your obsession with the, with the outward appearances, your neglect of the inner man and a personal relationship with God. So beware. It all sounds very harsh. And, and maybe if you're honest, maybe you don't like how direct that is. Maybe it makes you feel icky. But the truth is, Guys, that God is actually dealing the people a kindness through the blunt preaching of John the Baptist. But it just doesn't fit into like our therapeutic way of looking at the world, does it? It makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And even saying that, that God's dealing the people a kindness, that might feel like a stretch. Or, or, or just be hard for us to wrap our minds around. So I want to let scripture interpret scripture a little bit. And, uh, and I want to look at Matthew uh, chapter 21, Jesus encounters this fig tree. Matthew 21, 18, I'll, I'll put some of it up on the screen for you. In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. That's reasonable. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. What was he looking for? He was looking for fruit. He's hungry. And he says to the tree, he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. That seems harsh. What did that fig tree ever do to you, Jesus? It was probably doing the best it could. It's just eking out its, its existence on the roadside. It's not getting tended to. It's not getting fertilized. Come on. 
Where's your compassion? What are you so mad about? Remember the problem with my pear tree. The problem was that it had what? All the signs of life, but not a bit of fruit. And this is the exact problem that Jesus sees with that fig tree, isn't it? And he's using that to make a point. He's not, he's not mad at a fig tree, right? He's making a point. He went to it looking for fruit and he found nothing on it but only leaves. See, bearing no fruit is a sign that death is taking over the system. And if that's true, while the warnings from John seem harsh, while this episode with Jesus seem harsh, it means that God is dealing a kindness to the fruitless religious tourists in the crowds. He's attempting to warn them that their fruitless lives, their lives that are all leaves and no fruit, are a sign that death is taking over the system. And this requires that a drastic change take place, or else he might as well just take out a saw and finish the job right then and there. Because they're as good as dead without serious intervention. Okay. That's a lot of talk about trees. So how might we apply this concept to the modern church? I, I want to preface this section by saying this is simply what you do with the scripture, right? You look in the mirror, you confront yourself with it by asking tough questions, and you say, is this me, Lord? The answer may be yes, and the answer may be no. And so that is what we're about to do with this. What might it look like for a church, let's say, to be all leaves and no fruit? It might look like a lot of churchy activities and gatherings, but very little serious concern for the gospel good of our city and neighbors. It might look like a lot of dollars being spent, but very little serious personal investment by individuals in seeing the lost saved in our midst. It might look like a lot of hours being logged by a few, but, but very little overall concern from the church about making disciples who make disciples. And so we, we have to look in the mirror. Because this is what you do with the scriptures. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. We have to look in the mirror and we have to be honest and say, is this us? Is Indian Creek Baptist Church a dispensary of religious goods and services that help semi-religious people to feel better about themselves while com contributing to their therapeutic and social well-being? Are we primarily concerning ourselves with things other than Making disciples who make disciples. Seeing the Great Commission take root and spread forth. Are we as a people, as an organization, a group that is all leaves but no fruit? If so, we had better take heed. For the axe is laid to the root of the tree. We might be building a, a, a building that can withstand the next hundred years. But are we building up the next generation of the church to continue on faithfully in the Great Commission? That will have an impact that resonates way beyond 100 years. That resonates off thousands and then millions off into eternity for eons.
So is, is this us? First question. Second question. Is this you? It's uncomfortable to even ask a question like this, but, but guys, this text issues a sober warning and I am constrained by the Lord this morning to ask you guys, are there vipers among us here today? Are there people who manipulate and oppress and do wickedness in secret, fooling themselves into thinking that God doesn't see or that God doesn't care because they have so long neglected the inner man that their consciences are seared? Are you among us today? John is warning you, the axe is laid to the root of the tree because there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Perhaps you're even saying right now in real time, listen, just step back. I'm not mad at y'all. This is just what the text says. We gotta, we gotta do something with it, right? Are we going to deal with what it says or are we not? So perhaps you're even saying right now in real time as you're seeking to justify yourself in your wickedness. Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. Well, the crowds, John anticipated them saying something similar. He said, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They were saying the same kind of thing, justifying themselves. Because what did John say back? He said, I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham if he wants. He can breathe life into the dust. I think that some of the some of the, 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 the green leaves that we fool ourselves into thinking are, are, are actually fruit are just like basic participation in, in normal parts of church life, you know? Which are good and are necessary. But 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 they don't work to justify yourself before the Lord, right? Well I've you know, I've I've helped with Sunday school and I've helped with BBS and Awana and the worship band, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, but how do you treat your wife when no one's looking? How do you treat people who are, in some sense, subject to your authority? When was the last time that you admitted that you were wrong before the Lord and asked for his help to change and not do it again? When was the last time you went out of your way to make it right when you wronged someone? Listen, God does see and God does, does care and a neglect of the inner man and a lack of fruit in keeping with repentance while attempting to maintain that outward image. That is a recipe for spiritual disaster and a great collapse is on the horizon for you, brother or sister. So if that is you, first of all, repent. Well, first own it. And then repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your wickedness and turn toward the Lord. And secondly, as John said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And remember that that which does not bear good fruit is cut down. I know that that seems harsh, but, but like John, I'm trying to deal you a kindness this morning. Listen, I've seen too many people who seemed so outwardly spiritual and put together either slide quietly into a life of unbelief never to be heard from again or make total shipwreck of their lives and they all started out the same the fruit of repentance started to dry up even though outwardly they seemed to be squeaky clean this was a sign that death had infected the system and i'm pleading with you don't end up like that that does not have to be your story. Confess your sin. Turn from it. Run to Jesus while there's still time. You're still breathing. 
You're still alive. There's still time. And he stands willing and ready to forgive you of your sin and then to deploy you out on his mission. The occasion, the cause, the content. Let's talk about the outcome. The outcome. What was the point of John's life? We're taking the text a little out of order here. Verse 4 and following, I think, I think explains it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is a citation from Isaiah, and that is, uh, that is prophecy about John. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is this? This is a simple picture of how to make a really good road. You fill in the valleys. You flatten out the mountains and hills. You straighten out the crooked bits. You smooth out the rough patches. And there you have it, one great road, listen, that anyone can drive on. J. Alec Matir, a renowned Old Testament scholar, he, he says that make straight his path. Remember, this is actually a, a citation from the Old Testament. Uh, that, that phrasing uh, could be used at that time outside of the Bible to refer to the creation of special processional routes along which the images of the gods were carried on festivals. Sounds like a parade of sorts. This is a special new road that cultures would create uh, for a celebration for their God. And here Isaiah plucks that out of its uh, original cultural context and applies it. And he says this is a special new road for a God-sized celebration. This is a party road. And the good news about this party road is you don't have to be super strong to climb up really, really, really high to get there. You don't have to have specialized equipment to, to sink way, 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 way down and then climb your way all the way back up. You don't have to be ultra skillful in order to navigate around the dangerous curves. No, this is one great road that anyone can drive on. And it illustrates the point of John's life perfectly. The point of John's life was really singular. And it was this, to cut a clear path from where they are to where Christ is. He wanted to ensure that there were no stumbling blocks in the way. No extra hoops to jump through. Just a clear, straight path to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simply put, John was there to prepare the way and then get out of the way. And his life bore that out. So with that fresh in your mind, the point of John's life, I want to ask you a really pointed question if you're ready for another one of those. What is the point of your life? What is the point of your life? How would you answer that question? Now, if I asked your spouse that about you, what do you think their answer would be? 
or your best friend or your siblings or your children, whoever it is that knows you best, what is the point of your life? Is your life paving a smooth road for others to get to Jesus or is there way too much of you in the way? Does the fruit of your life look like you're all in on enjoying him or is it all drudgery and whatever other enjoyment you can eke out on the side? And what do you do if it is? What, what if you feel so stuck that you're basically just a lifeless stump of a person and, and you feel like all of the greenery, if there ever was any, it's turned brown and it's been stripped away? What if that's you? I have good news. If you notice in the text, the crowds do respond, okay? But also, I think that, that, that some of the lifeless stumps, those who don't have all the religious greenery to lean on, they really jump in on the party path to Jesus too. You see in verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Tax collectors were renowned for being just awful, traitors to their own people and so forth. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? Soldiers were not, were not typically the friends of the Jews. And so these unreligious stumps are specifically named as some of those who start to speak up. They're honest about where they are. What do they have to lose? And so they flat out ask John, what do we do, man? What do we do now? And so if that's you, I just want you to know you're in good company. Start asking the question, okay, well, what do I do now? And you can start to see a way forward. That's, that's not all, though. I got one last bit of really good news. And it comes from Isaiah 11. We'll look at 1 through 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. If right now you feel like you're just a lifeless, leafless stump of a person, the good news is that the Savior himself sprouted up out of a stump, right? The, the same story is on repeat throughout the Bible over and over again. God overcomes impossible situations. He, he makes a way when there is no way. He delights to show himself as the only one who can forge a new way forward. That's what he does, y'all. The reality of the gospel is that God is in the business of sprouting green out of barren, lifeless stumps, of, of breathing new life into dry, dusty bones, of completely changing the trajectory of those on the slow train to Deathsville. The scripture says Abraham was as good as dead. And then God intervened. Isaac was almost done. Then God sends a substitute. Moses is on the run. And then God came and found him. Paul was a heartless religious elite. And then God gave him a new heart. And Christ himself was crucified, dead, and in the tomb. But he did not stay there. He's done it before, and he can do it again. What's keeping him from doing the same thing to you, dear brother or sister? Don't you want to live don't you want your life to count for the sake of Jesus Christ? Don't you want your life to be about cutting a smooth trail from where they are to where he is? Don't you want to stop living a life that's all leaves and no fruit? 
What's standing in your way this morning? Pride? Self-esteem? Your respectable self-image? I'm sorry, but all of those things are, they're going to take you straight to hell. What if we quit caring about all of that and went all in on pursuing Christ no matter the cost, the best we can? Everybody, that looks different for everybody. Everybody's got different capabilities. And, but don't you want that? Don't you want that? To go all in on, on pursuing Christ no matter the cost. I say, let's do it. Let's do it. Let, let's go there together. Let's ask the Lord to intervene and to make us more like him this year. Let, let's respond like those in the crowd by, by admitting that we've been on the wrong path and, and seeking to reconcile it. Let's figure out what the next right move is for us and then go make it. We can go there together. Let's do that in this new year. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your kindness toward us, Lord. Thank you for, for giving us the word, Lord. Thank you for, for John the Baptist. And more than anything, Lord, thank you for, thank you for Jesus. John's preparing the way to, to just point us to the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God welcomes sinners, bad people. He welcomes these into his family. And he pays the price of adoption. Lord, please don't, don't let us leave here unmoved, Lord. Unmoved to, to action for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, for the, for the sake of seeing generations in the future come to know and love you, Lord. And to keep preaching this gospel like we are now. God, we can't do anything. We can't do anything that's good apart from you. So Lord, would you do it? Would you be the one who's doing the work, Lord? We need you more than we even understand. Lord, I pray that we would feel that need and that you would meet us there and help us go forward. You're doing it. It's all you, and it's not us, but thank you for bringing us along for the ride. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll move into a time of response. If you, uh, I know that these can be really uncomfortable times, and you're like, you know, maybe you, the Lord is moving in, in you, and you're like, okay, now I'm supposed to walk up to the front of this room and be seen in that. Um, I know that that can be weird. Uh, but we want to invite you to do it anyways, if you're up for it. Uh, I'll, I'll be up here, and, and as needed, the elders will, will trickle up if they see you coming up this way. Or, or if you don't want to talk to anybody, you just want to, you just want to deal with the Lord and do business. Man, do it, do it right where you are. Grab someone next to you if, you if you want someone to pray for you. I'm sure that they would love to do that. So, uh, so we're, we're going to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll sing and worship a little bit together, uh, and then we'll, uh, then we'll keep it rolling. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up. As
Christ be all around. 